0: You're listening to Midori House first broadcast on the 4th of April 2019 on Monocle 24 hello and welcome to Midori House coming to you live from Studio One here in London I'm Andrew Muller on today's show this is the story of our changing planet what we can do to help it thrive. The Least Endangered Species, the wildlife documentary. Netflix releases its contribution to the genre. My guests Terry Stiasny and Ivor Gaber will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the hopes of sections of Italy's government for building a European far-right alliance, like that will help. Brexit, offering further proof that hitting the snooze button never works out well. And why would a prime minister leave the country five days before an election? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 25 thoughts. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Ivor Geber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and Terry Stiasny, the author and journalist. Welcome both. Uh, We will begin by looking ahead to next month's European elections, in which it turns out the UK's still possible participation might not be the single stupidest storyline. Italy's Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini, leader of the far-right component of Italy's governing Yahoo Coalition, is seeking to build a continent-wide alliance of similarly in Declined nativist cranks. To this end, he plans to organise a conference of like minds in Milan next week, because gatherings of far-right populists in Milan have hardly ever worked out badly. Attendees at this event, on roughly the 100th anniversary of Mussolini's Piazza San Sepulcro rally, incidentally, and I looked that up and everything, will include ethnocentric headbangers from as many as 20 countries. Um, Terry, I've, I've possibly not given this the most unbiased in. <laughs> introduction i could have um so how excited are you for this
1: (laughs) i'm not going (laughs) i mean uh i i am i suppose more concerned and worried than excited um it is interesting i suppose that you know that salvini is particularly asking say the german afp party to come along to this gathering. Um, I think, you know, obviously, you know, we always get with European elections, generally a low turnout, generally a high protest vote, generally parties that say we're against the whole national establishment do very well. And we've, of course, we've seen some of these parties do well in, in national elections uh, as well. I think the you know if we can take some consolation out of it the tro- if you get a whole load of sort of nationalist headbangers together one of the things that you can guarantee is they're not all going to agree on everything you know if by definition if you're a nationalist you think your own country's got the best policies and that probably means uh you know not agreeing with every other country in Europe's similar nationalistic policies so we've already seen Quite a few people saying they're not going to turn up to this meeting. Uh, The Polish Law and Justice Party saying we don't want to go along. The Netherlands, the various far-right parties there and saying we're not sure that we're going to go along. Um, But I suppose the more serious thing to worry about is a growing far-right group in the European Parliament. After the elections and how that shakes down in terms of numbers within within the different party groupings, I suppose.
0: See, either for many of those reasons, which Terry has just adumbrated, I'm I'm heartily in favour of this gathering because I think that the potential is there for a fantastic punch-up. Uh, I mean, I mean, really, the, the best way to stop the far-right parties from all over Europe from forming an alliance is to put them all together.
2: Well, I, I'm fascinated, but they've had a split before they even started. Which I, is, you is, Imagine my surprise. I, 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 I think there's a, a, there's a slightly lighter and a serious element. The lighter element is there does seem to be some sort of fault in the DNA of far-right politico- politicos that they... Is this ca- the thing about them all being incredibly thick? No. You may say that, I couldn't possibly <laughs> comment, um, but they do tend to have great trouble in coalescing. Um, if you look at the far right in Britain, um, the splits, and the, and the similarly in the European Parliament, there are a number of far right groupings. So that's the slight oddity, if you like, but the serious thing is they are reflecting, obviously, um, major political shifts happening in Europe. Um, whether this particular grouping and Salvini is an interesting character, having formed an alliance with a party that likes to style itself as on the left, um, but is clearly not. I suppose, for my own view, the Five Star Movement initially is far more anarchistic than on the left. But nonetheless, he is perhaps the leading individual in the European right in in terms of of these new groupings. And I think it's something to watch. There is clearly going to be a significant vote for nationalist parties. And I think it's something that could well destabilize the European Parliament. Uh, on that subject, Terry, is is the
0: European Parliament uh, susceptible or unusually susceptible to uh, extremist entryism from any side of the spectrum due to voter indifference? Turnout in Italy uh, in the 2014 European elections was 57%, which isn't actually the worst it could have been. There are... Measured against some countries, that's actually pretty respectable. But is that a problem for the European Parliament that it's kind of there for the taking for anybody who can angry up a big enough base?
1: Yes, I mean that has been the case for for quite a few years now. I mean, look at the number of uh, UKIP MEPs who keep also changing their name, changing their allegiances in in the UK. They can style themselves as sort of look. This is your chance to protest against you know the kind of the European elites as people see them. So, yeah. Yes, they have done well, and if you look at um, the French opinion polls today, for instance, uh, Marine Le Pen and her national rally is is running Macron quite a close second in the French polling for the European elections. Uh, I think one of the one of the risks as well is that is what groups we put people in. I mean, we call some of these groups the far right. There's what they call the Europe of Nations and Freedom group, but you know, Viktor Orbán's Fidesz party from Hungary has until now been allowed to be part of the European. People's Party group, which is supposedly the kind of centre centre right block. I mean, now they've made, been making moves to, to try and throw him out. But you know, as party, if parties suddenly move further across to this, on the on the populist spectrum, you know, that is that is quite a worry. That other parties of of the centre, and as, as we've seen in in governments across Europe, they, they are prepared to sit with them and they are prepared to to forge those alliances. Well,
2: some people suggest that the beginnings of the Brexit Farrago that we now find ourselves in started with David Cameron moving the ME, the Europe the, the conservative MEPs out of this the essentially the Christian Democrat bloc into the European sorry out of the European People's Party bloc which is essentially Christian Democrat into the more extreme one and that started that gave the momentum to to, that led to the demands for a referendum so I do think we have to take these uh, groupings or grouplets however you want to describe them seriously because they do have the effect of pulling the centre right parties further to the right and we've seen that happening and no doubt that will happen again after the next round.
0: Well moving along then Ivor given that you've queued us up by mentioning, as you put it, the Brexit Farago, who I believe are playing festivals around Europe this summer. Uh, we will move on and look for as long as we can stand it at the UK's latest confident strides towards the sunlit uplands of Brexit. Talks are continuing. Actually, they've just finished, it says here. They've ended after 4.4 4.5, four and a half hours uh, between the more or less governing Conservative Party and the alleged Opposition Labour Party, who have accepted the recent invitation of the Prime Minister to reason may to help her choose which wire to cut before the clock ticks to zero again. In the meantime, debates in the House of Commons were adjourned today when proceedings were disrupted by a leak, about which all the imaginable jokes have by now been done unfortunately. Um, Terry, at this point in the Brexit process, how is your will to live holding up?
1: it's it's bumping along the. I keep thinking it's hit the bottom and then and it just goes a little bit lower, and then it keeps carrying on uh so yeah, will to live is fairly low, I suppose if I've got signs of you know reasons to cling on at the moment, it is that uh Yvette Cooper's bill to try to sort of completely rule out no deal is currently with all sorts of filibustering and, and other nonsense going on, uh, trying to go through the House of Lords. The House of Lords is planning to pull an all-nighter, possibly until 6.30 in the morning to try to, could, could to get could see a few bill. of them
0: off, couldn't we? <laughs> <be>? They <laughs>
1: <laughs> could do. I, mean, I remember once reporting on the House of Lords and I literally saw uh, people bringing in folding camp beds on a night like this. So I think somebody's dusting off their folding camp beds uh, as, as we speak. Um, so, you know, there's progress on that score, I suppose. Um, the May and Corbyn Talks, as you say, have gone. It's quite interesting that we've heard nothing about them except obviously an agreed statement from both sides that tend, mostly concentrates on what they had for lunch, which was apparently some sandwiches and some onion bhajis. so that's nice. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, you forget that, you know, we are running out of time to get this sorted by the European summit next week to or, or Friday, which is our next current deadline for, for falling out without a deal. So I think, you know, there's some sort of... Glimmers of
0: hope, but not that one. Uh, Ivor, the, the government is describing today's talks, all four and a half hours of them, minus the adjournment for sandwiches and onion bhaji's as detailed and productive, which is one of those fabulously meaningless um, examples well, of political jargon. What do we imagine they meant by that?
2: Well, I mean, it's an interesting t- turn of phrase because I was struck last night when Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn came out and said he was disappointed by the talks or he was surprised that Mrs May had nothing new to offer. So and at that point, and maybe this is a continuation of it, I do think we're. this is as much um, theatre as it is real politics. It, it perhaps does give Mrs May, the Prime Minister, the ability to say, look, I did my best. I tried to be, to both show to her own party and to the European Commission that she is doing her best to get a deal. Um, but that quote that you've just given us, your newsfeed is is, is is quicker than mine, um, is more upbeat than I would have expected Um I well, find at least he didn't say full and frank exchange well, of views. So. Then we know they were physical, physical, <laughs> um, I do think, and uh, you've heard me say this many times, we are in uncharted waters. I think I then said, there, but there was light at the end of the tunnel. You did. That was <laughs>
0: fabulous. So that was a a, a, a great metaphor, pilot. Uh,
2: a light. This time I say a light at the end of the channel tunnel. Um, it's so difficult to call. Are oh, these talks for real? Has Mrs May finally, finally agreed to compromise? Is Jeremy Corbyn now committed to maybe a second referendum? Who, there are so many imponderables. It's great theatre, but what it's doing for the country, God only knows. Uh,
0: on, the, on that second referendum, uh, Terry, do you get the sense that this is an... I, I, I'm, I'm trying to guard against uh, wishful thinking myself because my own view is that the the only meaningful way out of this is, I mean, there will need to be another public vote at some point. I can't see politically that that's not possible if this thing is going to be significantly adjusted or turned around or stopped entirely. Uh, But the shadow Brexit secretary, Sir Keir Starmer, has said that the idea of a confirmatory referendum on any Brexit deal would be discussed. Now, There's obvious differences between Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, and pretty much the rest of his shadow cabinet. He seems notably unenthused by the idea so far. But do you get the sense it might be be the one, well, not everyone's going to agree on it, but there might be a grudging acceptance that this is now the least worst option available?
1: I see. I'm not sure about that. I think if you get, and I know, as you said, Keir Starmer saying one thing, um, but once you get Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn in a room together, as you say, we don't know what they've been saying. One thing the two of them can probably agree on is that they are neither of them keen on having a second referendum. So although the Labour Party will protest, you know, this is supposed to be our policy. The things that we've heard from most of the shadow cabinet during the course of the day are, are really downplaying the whole second referendum idea and so i think the two of them between them might you know one one of the things that may come out of this is that they're going to say we we don't want to put it to another referendum they might talk about extensions they might talk about customs union uh i think they're going to kick the referendum as as far as they can away
0: but but also um neither of them presumably and i'm i'm inviting you here to Tell us what is in the minds of Jeremy Corbyn (laughs) and Theresa May. So good luck with that. But neither of them want to be holding this thing when it goes off, do they?
1: Uh, No, which is the other. I mean, the other kind of public vote that there could end up being on it. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn keeps saying he wants to have a general election. We know that Theresa May is going to be out of that door at Downing Street at some point in the near future. We don't know when. Uh, I mean, both of them risk, you know, if they risk going into another election in which, which is essentially a Brexit election, they both risk blowing their political parties into even more smithereens than they are already. So that's the other thing that they, they kind of neither of them really wants to go. Why, on. That's
2: why. That's why I I, I I don't totally agree with you. That's why the confirmatory referendum could be attractive. Neither. The, the, the conservatives who've got the, the most number of seats in the House and therefore control it would do everything they can not to have an election with Theresa May leading them. So. But the pressure now is such that it could just be that it does give them a a, a way out. There are now conservatives, two conservative cabinet ministers that when I I last checked have now said there is a case to be made for confirmatory resolution. Keir Starmer, who's now leading the talks because Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May didn't meet today, it was the next round, is on record as supporting one. The Labour's shadow foreign secretary has said she wants one. So although I don't think it will happen... I think it's there's a, there's a growing chance that it might. Does that make sense? That if
1: it's, it's possible, yeah, I think possible. it's a possibility. Yeah.
2: When a few weeks ago it was highly unlikely. The I question is, can they
1: agree on? What the question is, well, then, what 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 options will we be deciding between? Would we be deciding between, uh, you know, Theresa May's deal, or a customs union, or some form of other deal, or you know, remaining, or you know, what what's what would be in that referendum? Is the the two things? Well, really I, I, I
0: think a dear God, make it stop <laughs> option would would be incredibly <laughs> popular at this point. And um, I've on the subject of political theatre. What do you divine from the fact that the German Chancellor Angela Merkel has chosen today of all days to drop in on Dublin?
2: Well, I think there is a bit of political theatre there that she is showing solidarity that Ireland is not going to be hung out to dry. That is the bottom line. That is the reddest of red lines. But also, um, I do think that she's thrashing around for allies is the wrong word. But Leo... The Vradka Vradka has shown himself I think in the last two years to be quite a a figure of substance and Angela Merkel is now surrounded by a rather ragbag growing number of members of the European Union have got far right governments I I, I think she's making alliances where she can she now sees him as an ally in the way she used to see Britain Um, the sensible northern Europeans against the rest I think she's building that relationship
0: Okay. well, just finally and just briefly, um, I I know both of you have been through this mill before. I I was in the habit of asking people where they thought we would be on March 29th in or out. Uh, Everybody who said in was proved right. Those who said out were proved wrong. But I I didn't keep a running tally, (laughs) which I really should have. Uh, So I'm going to ask you both, uh, Terry, you first very briefly, April 12th. Well, actually, probably more to the point, April 13th. Are we still in the EU or have we left? We're still in. I tend Um, to agree with that, Ivor. Yeah, in. It's never going to end. It is never going to end. We are going to be talking about Brexit until the sun dies. And on that happy thought, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Terry Stiasny and Ivor Gaber. More shortly, do stay tuned. Rome boasts an ancient specialisation in restoring the masterpieces of the past. But thanks to innovative technology, the works of Rome's art restorers is also very current. Monaco Films travelled to the Eternal City to visit restoration studio Merlini Storti. The founders of the all-women team were trained by the former chief restorer at Vatican Museums, Maurizio De Luca.
1: We can understand how restoration has always been present and how, from the historical background, schools of restoration to where founders that have formed a generation of restorers who currently are considered the best in the world.
0: The Art of Restoration, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. And you're back with Midori House, with me Andrew Muller, still with me are Teres Diasny and Ivor Geber. Next Tuesday Israel votes in a general election. Incumbent Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu however has found better things to do with the last week of campaigning than shaking hands, kissing babies and so forth. He has lit out for Moscow for a catch up with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Bemused Israeli journalists were informed that Netanyahu and Putin plan to discuss Syria though follow up questions if there were any as to why this was a meeting rather than a Phone call languished unanswered. Suspicion has thus sprouted that the visit is itself something of an election stunt aimed at emphasising Netanyahu's credentials as a well-connected global statesman. Um, Terry, is um, there's a, obviously there's a common political wisdom which I, you've doubtless heard many times that there are no votes in foreign policy. Is Israel an exception to that
2: rule?
1: Uh, I'm- sure that there are no votes in in foreign policy I think every leader that's kind of running for re-election likes to go and stand on the, the world stage next to someone and try and make themselves look important and try and suggest that they're the more statesman-like candidate um I think in this case this is a a pretty high risk choice of of stage to go and stand on I mean the, <laughs> it's not necessarily the photo that you want in your last few days of campaigning well, unless you can come out of it and say look I was talking really tough look I've got some um, uh, you know some points out of this. I, I've, I can stand up, you know, to Putin and, and tell him what's what, which I I would imagine is is the kinder of, is the kind of agenda behind this. Uh, and also, you know, there's questions obviously. In the last couple of days, we've seen the return of of the dead IDF soldier, Zachary Barman, Barmel, who was killed uh, in in 1982, and that's you know they're trying to say that look, by by dealing with other countries, we can start to work on you know some of the other big issues that are going on. And of course, you know, he's standing against somebody who like who'd also been in the military, so kind of standing there and saying, you know, I- I'm I'm a player. Is, is something that people like to do,
0: generally. Um, Terry is, of course, correct that, that politicians tend to enjoy presenting themselves as great commanding presences on the world stage. But there's, you do get a certain amount of choice, I think, in who you choose to stand mm. next to. And his, his trip to visit Vladimir Putin follows after he hosted Brazil's rather unlikable president, Jair Bolsonaro. What, what do we glean from the company that Netanyahu is choosing to keep?
2: i think I think the choice of um, Putin is very significant. There are over a million um Russian Jews in Israel true enough, who um, are motivated by two things, a passionate belief in the importance of their faith although many of them weren't Jewish I'm told but secondly a strong anti-Sovietism but not anti-Russianism and they see in Putin something of a hero, somebody who is reasserting Russia. I think this is a play for the Russian votes Um, Netanyahu's position at the moment in the polls is ambivalent because of what happens afterwards nobody wins a majority and it's all the courage building. He wants the Russian vote. The um, Lieberman is the, um, or is one of the main politicians supporting, um, who represent the Russian vote. So I think he's making a play for that. I also think that the notion of, I think in Israel, foreign policy particularly, in terms of its neighbours, is important, and Putin, Russia, Putin op- not opens the door, but continues Netanyahu's dialogue with some Arab states. As you know, that in a bizarre way, that Netanyahu has created more more dialogue and more informal partnerships with Arab states than any other. And part of that is 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 based on the sort of power play going on with Putin, Iran, Russia. Um, And he, it it is a very, uh, for me, it's a shrewd move because Netanyahu is a strong man and he likes to identify with strong men. And that's why he gets the security vote and and being seen alongside Putin reassures Israelis who think that's the most important issue. Uh,
0: Terry, could there be at least an element of this as just a a straightforward gesture of gratitude? You mentioned there that the return of the remains of Staff Sergeant Zachary Baumol, the Israeli soldier who was killed in Lebanon in 1982. There's a funeral in Jerusalem tonight um that is obviously an extremely uh, important and emotional event for i think quite a lot uh, of of israel and, and as far as it's possible to tell uh, the his his body was recovered by russian and indeed according to russia at least with with syrian assistance um it's it's not clear quite where he was or how they found him but um is it possible that, that netanyahu is is repaying a favor here or acknowledging a good turn
1: uh, yes, I mean that this whole question of to to what extent Russia helped with, with the return of these remains, which you know obviously is going to be, you know, as you say, sort of massively important for for people within Israel. It, it's quite a good way, you know. We don't know, obviously, what went on exactly behind the scenes, but they're also trying to work on, you know, overcoming their one of the last rows uh, that happened back in the autumn though, about, uh, you know, arguing about whose spy sp- Russian spy plane being shot down uh, by Syria, and and was you know, Russia had said at the time that Israel was using this Russian jet as some sort of cover. So, you know, there obviously are still huge live issues, not you know, to do with to do with Russia's role in. Syria to do with uh, iran you know and then of course not forgetting sort of trump's decision on on the Golan Heights. so you can understand that there would actually be quite a few big issues of substance uh, to talk about here as well uh, and also let's not forget as i was kind of referring to that um, you know you might want to turn away from some domestic issues at the moment if you're netanyahu particularly when you know people have been talking about allegations of corruption and so forth actually playing up the international the importance of international negotiations is quite a good way to to distract from from troubles closer to home And either just
0: finally on this subject it's always fun to take the official explanation at face value i mean we, we should give it some credence what is it about syria that netanyahu and putin should need to discuss so urgently
2: uh, well, the, the urgency is there's an election in five days. Um, but the other thing is, I mean, I, I hesitate to say this and don't throw things Netanyahu is seen, he, his his domestic reputation is dreadful, but he's also seen as a statesman in many ways. He strides on the world stage and him being seen talking to Putin, sorting out, as you said, they did have a misunderstanding about Syria and whose jet was... Whose jet the missiles were being aimed at, but it does seem to me that he has a lot. Israel has a lot of lot of what's it? Dogs in the fight is that the right expression? Uh, I'm that'll do us. yeah. Uh, dogs in the dogs fight. dogs in, in the fight at the end Syria. of the tunnel. <laughs> that's right and in, uh, in uncharted waters and I think that it's Israel Israel wants wants to be a player in the whatever's going to happen in Syria both and Russia is a player and in a bizarre way um, they have a mutual interest in keeping a control on the situation um, whether the the Iranian role is ambiguous because on the one hand Iran is supporting Assad but on the other hand Russia and Iran are squaring up each other. So, yeah, th- I can see it makes sense. Whether it will work in the end in electoral terms, we shall see. OK, well, finally tonight, a look at the brave new world
0: of modern streaming television, which seems to be betting big on a mainstay of old world television, i.e. the nature documentary. Tomorrow, Netflix will unleash Our Planet, an epic series shot over the last four years in more than 50 countries and narrated in a clear enough attempt to snatch this niche from the BBC by the indefatigable Sir David Attenborough. Advance Press has it however that our planet is not or at least not only your standard collage of slow motion cheaters and stumbling penguins but an urgent attempt at environmental environmental i was doing so well environmental consciousness raising uh terry will, will you be tuning in
1: uh, i i've not watched as many of these things as i should normally because i you know, it's mostly the narrative you think it's going to be lovely stumbling penguins and then there's all this terrible terrible jeopardy you know the stumbling penguin is going to, little baby penguin chick is going to get eaten by the big whale or whatever it is then but ba- basically whale, you, Charles, basically you, know. basically you just want penguins but i want nice penguins and nice things happen to and I, you know if it's like not only is the penguin being you know threatened by the the evil seal that's coming to eat it but also you know that it's being threatened by the tidal wave of plastic that's going to engulf it as well. I mean, I'm sure it will look absolutely beautiful and I'm sure people will, you know, want to watch it. Um, I think, you know, the, this idea of having more messaging is it's probably a good thing. It's probably there's a, a market for that. People actually want to hear it at the moment. Certainly, if my kids are anything to go by, they're constantly telling me about all the terrible things that are happening to sea creatures because of plastics and about, about the poor dolphins with plastic bags. The, the, the so. long
0: winter evenings <laughs> must have flown by. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting
1: lectured by this the whole time. So they'll probably watch it and I'll probably sit there going, oh, okay. Uh, I mean, okay. I mean, I,
0: I, I, is, is there an argument that the nature documentary in itself is or should be enough of a message in that respect? I mean, Life on Earth, the, the pioneering David Attenborough series of several billion years ago, gets a lot of credit as a, a
2: catalyst for environmental consciousness. Yeah, but I mean, this this documentary seems to be particularly interesting because it does have shots of the penguins or the nice cuddlies, and then it pulls back or tells you over with it, with an op-screen caption that the forest where this was shot does not exist anymore, has now become palm oil plantations or whatever. So I think it is combining, because I don't think cuddly documentaries is is, is enough now. You know, we are facing, what is it, within 10 years, we reach the tipping point. And I think that um, David Attenborough and, and certainly the producer of this series are now saying it's not enough to raise people's awareness, we've got to motivate them into action. And I think there's a shock factor, and I welcome it, because, you know, we've seen lots of lovely pictures, but, you know, the time has now come for action.
0: Uh, terry the the risk is though of the merely preaching to the converted and annoying the yet to be convinced
1: i think it depends how well it's i mean looking at trailers for this series it does look absolutely beautifully shot and i think these are you know as iva says very experienced people david attenborough and and the team who've made this uh i think as as long as the narrative and the images are compelling enough, people will take swallow a fairly hefty amount of, of messaging with it. So as long as you've got the, the story there that kind of grabs you and the images that grab you and the access, then I think it, I think it all should work.
0: And and lots of echidnas. Echidnas are my benchmark yeah. for judging naked nature documentaries. <laughs> e- e- it's it's your equivalent to penguins.
1: Yeah, I think you know. Is so I want the Pixar version, the nice happy ending Pixar version. That's what.
0: Uh, Either very quickly, do you have an echidna
2: or penguin equivalent benchmark? Well, it's that dreadful scene where that um, somebody the, the, those snakes are chasing the. Oh, yeah. Um, something which just is just so is it scary. Meerkats? Something like Meerkats. Meerkats. Yeah. And uh, the Meerkat gets away, but goodness knows no how many didn't But to film that sequence. Well, on that cheerful thought, uh,
0: <laughs> if, if you are interested to hear more about Our Planet, do tune into tonight's Monocle Daily from 2200. Ben Ryland spoke to the show's producers, oh. Keith Scoley and Alastair Fothergill. And that seamless plug uh, brings us to the end of today's show. Ivor Gaber and Terry Stiasny, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco by Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist and there's more in the day's main stories on The Daily as we've told you once already at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 tomorrow. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.